Awesome. Welcome to the first episode of the Curiosity Offensive. I am Tiffany Madison, an entrepreneur, consultant, advisor, investor, and activist. And on this podcast, we're going to be exploring the state of curiosity in life, work, business, politics, parenting, and culture. This podcast will also feature conversations with curious individuals from diverse mindsets. I'm inviting walking contradictions, interesting humans, and people capable of non-binary thinking, meaning dynamic, curious people that love to challenge the status quo. So they're neither one thing or another, um, and that is so interesting to me. And ultimately, if you're listening this to this, you are curious about learning things that are new. So welcome. This podcast is also for anyone that can embrace a beginner's mindset and is not scared to ask questions from a posture of genuine, well-intentioned curiosity, something that seems to be out of fashion these days. So essentially real people doing interesting things with their time on this earth. And so that brings us to my first guest, Adrian Marquez. Welcome, Adrian. Hi, thank you for bringing me. Absolutely. So I'm going to give a quick background on Adrian. Adrian is a badass. So he brings a unique perspective to the field of psychotherapy. And before transitioning to mental health counseling, Adrian spent 16 years in the Marine Corps. Uh, my fellow crayon eaters out there will be very grateful that we have him on here. Uh, he also served, yeah. <laughs> I knew that. Had to work that in there for uh, for a couple of my guys there. Um, he served as a recon Marine and Marine Raider before compounding combat injuries led to his medical retirement. And during that time in service, he was trained as a scout sniper, combatant diver, military free faller, uh, master breacher, as well as many other unique advanced special operation courses. He also graduated from the Joint Special Operation Forces Senior Enlisted Academy. For my civilian crowd, he's the guy that you play in Call of Duty. For the veteran crowd, he is also or was also a force recon team leader and a team chief. And during his career, he had the opportunity to fulfill other non-traditional roles under the Spec Ops Command, uh, including participating in Phantom Fury, the capture of Fallujah, as well as being deployed several times in small special operation teams across Afghanistan. Uh, Adrian's combat-related injuries awarded him a Purple Heart and led him to transition careers, including the one we're going to discuss today. And during that transition and while working on his own mental health struggles, he felt the need to call and help others strive toward wellness by pursuing his career in counseling. To my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, Adrian, you are one of the few special operators that is now a clinician working directly with mental health in the veteran population. Is that correct? Yeah, I've, I've found a few veterans out there that have been able to make this transition uh, and then it just keeps getting smaller and smaller of a community when we start looking for guys that were from the special operations community that have come over to become uh, uh, licensed mental health counselors or licensed psychotherapists. That's amazing to me. Uh, so wanted to also round out that while finishing your graduate degree, you worked with NASA and the DOD as the senior engineer for astronaut rescue and personnel recovery, which we're not even going to get into today as a whole other separate, fascinating uh, part of your background. Um, but you also have worked with SpaceX and Boeing on those programs. And then ultimately this led to the Sheepdog program, uh, which we're going to discuss today, which is a program uniquely tailored to veterans and first responders that takes a dynamically different approach to addressing PTSD, moral injury, which is something that most people are just becoming passingly familiar with. Um, and then also just reintegration and anxiety and any other disorders associated with 
combat trauma or the experience of, you know, basically serving in 20 years of perpetual war for perpetual peace. Right. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd like to just kind of dive right in, um, to your background, your experience, and also in the traditional mental health system, a lot of people listening, probably including myself, um, are probably not aware of how mental health is addressed in the traditional mental health structure when you are a veteran or a first responder, but particularly in this context, a, a veteran um, that is retiring and transitioning out. Can you tell me about your experience after retirement and getting treatment um, and both for civilians and veterans in the context of what was broken about that process in that system? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it, it's my story. I don't think is, uh, is, 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 is too bizarre. And I know I've met too many guys that have something similar that have happened to them as well. Uh, I mean, I just, it started off though, as a team chief in, in, in Marsoc, I remember waking up a few mornings and just having just this cloud of confusion over top of me, you know, I'm staring there, I'm sitting there looking at my clothes and I'm trying to figure out like, you know, what do I put on first pants or shoes? How do I, and, and just, just, just realizing that I was having trouble focusing and concentrating, you know, and then also, I also recognized that I was having some, you know, physical issues as well. I was trying to paint my house one day and like the paintbrush fell in my hand, you know, this would go to medical and I get you know, help order or ask a question, which is just difficult for some of us to do at first. It's like, they're going to say that we, we feel like something is wrong. And uh, the feedback that I was getting back was, you know, you know, it's probably just stress. It's probably just, you know, like, you know, I'd recently gone through a divorce. Um, it was probably just all of these other factors that are just somatically manifesting that are causing me to have you know, some, some, some kind of like you know, compounded is, uh, issues. But then all of a sudden there was one day where I could feel the back of my eyeball as I was like looking around. And that's when the doctors were like, all right, that's strange. We're a little worried about that. So let's go ahead and do an orbital scan on you. And uh, they recognized the scan, like, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a tumor, so you're good, you're good there, but you've had so much overpressure damage that there's like a rupture in your sinuses and you're, and you're trapping air, like air is kind of escaping and it's kind of sitting behind your eye. So, you know, they taught me this unique little way to kind of, you know, fart out of the side of my eye, I guess you could say. But they said, uh, you know, hey, but in that, in that image, we also saw part of your brain, so we want to do a, a brain scan as well, too. And uh, that's when they came back and they said, yeah, you, you got lancular lesions across your entire brain, small little micro tears all over. It. And one of them's in your orbital tract, which would explain why you're having so many issues with your eye and your vision and your focus. Um, hey, and uh, on a side note, we saw part of your neck when we were doing that scan too. So now we want to do an MRI on your neck. Then they came back and they said, okay, you got four compressed discs. Two of them have ruptured and they're cutting off your spinal column. And, uh, you know, you're kind of in this place where you're like, you know, one car accident or, or, or a moderate tackle away from paralysis. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cut it off. Um, so the, the doctors kind of encouraged me, like, it's, it's, it's time for you to take a break and we have to start dealing with these issues. But the Marine Corps, I mean, at this point in time, in this season of life, MARSOC was still just breaking away from the Marine Corps. So the Marine Corps was having to accept that, you know, they report to SOCOM. SOCOM had tasks and requirements for them, but the Marine Corps was still, you know, tasked with staffing Marines. Um, so what, what year they, was this, just for those who aren't familiar so this was about, MARSOC was established in 2006 when Rumsfeld, uh, you know, signed an order stating that, you know, Force Recon is going to start shifting into this MARSOC component. The Marine Corps will give us an aspect for special operation use. Um, so this was, but this was now we're talking about 2015 when I started to have these kind of compounding issues start to come at, uh, come at me. So, um, yeah, so I mean, it, it got to the point where I, uh, MARSOC was saying, 
yeah, we hear you, but we still need you for this next deployment coming up in about five months. So, uh, you know, how about when you get back and start getting taken care of? And, uh, you know, I thought about it and just like a lot of the guys just trying to tough it out and deal with it. I was like, you know, maybe I can do that. And then I finally had one master gun. Uh, you know, he's he loved name, you know, master guns Gruber. Um, I mean, because he, he did. You want to be able to play with him one day? Like you've gotten messed up some way on every deployment that you've been on. There's a good chance you're just rolling the dice and you might not, you might not come back the way you want to come back from this one. So, you know, he didn't ask for approval or authorization from his higher command, but he put my package up to go to Wounded Warrior Regiment, which once that's approved, they pull you away and then you go to Wounded Warrior Regiment for them to start working with you. And they'll, there's at least 30 days where you're working with the doctors. And that was good for me because they actually got it into my head of how badly I actually need to finally take a knee and start taking care of myself and, and, and think of life after service and what it's going to look like. Um, you know, for, for all of his due respect, all, all the things that he did for me, his reward was he got, you know, relieved of that command and sent over to logistics battalion. Um, so like they did not take care of him for taking care of Marines. Um, but uh, I went to Wounded Warrior Regiment. I was there for about 30 days. And at the end of those 30 days, Marsoc called me back up again. And they said, all right, brother, you got, you know, two months now, or you got like three months now before this next deployment. Are you ready to go? And I'm like, hey, I got surgery scheduled for my for, for my for one of my hips and next week and then my next tip six weeks later and they're still trying to authorize a surgery on my neck and uh they went back and forth saying like you know you can do it later you can do it later and uh and then it ended up with you know you know we're not going to get another master sergeant on our books until you're off our books so if that's where you're feeling we're just going to go ahead and pcs you to for 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 medical retirement so uh you know peace good luck don't forget to turn all your shit in type of the thing and that's when I got that, that, that's when I finally felt the emotional wounds, like that's uh, the abandonment, the depression, the anxiety, you know, I'd given them almost two decades of my life, you know, my first marriage, a, a relationship with my oldest son, uh, my body. And I felt like I was just being left out to dry. You know, I, 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 I was down in Tampa, Florida, the team that I was with was already getting ready for that deployment. So they were out, they were out, they were out doing training. And uh, I was just kind of left as a patient to, to go through the, the medical board process. And during that journey, you know, I started to go see mental health and I started working with all these different clinicians. And unlike a lot of veterans, I did not get along with them. You know, I'm sitting there and I'm talking to somebody who, I mean, they're brilliant, you know, smart, so much just learned knowledge and understanding behind them. But, but, you know, they've had a blessed life. You know, they go to an Ivy League school, you know, talking to some dude with a ponytail and the patches on his jacket and he's sitting there and he's, and he's saying, let's go back to this raid or let's go back to that mission. Let's go back to this operation or the time you pulled this trigger. I'm like, I'm, I'm fine with that. Like that doesn't bother me. I'm, I'm glad that happened because that needed to happen like that. That's not what's getting me, but because they couldn't comprehend that way of life, they couldn't comprehend those experiences. You know, they can understand how a person would be okay with taking a life or, or being in a firefight. They, 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 they would focus on it. They were hyper-focused on it. And it wasn't until somewhere down the line along the process, I met one clinician, uh, one really great one who, who, who just like stopped pretending like he could understand me. And he's like, I have no clue what you're talking about. All those acronyms you just said and all the things like, I, I, I don't know what any of that means, but I do know that when you talked about this one thing, your response changed. You know, you started the sweat, you started the shake, you started the stutter. You don't, you know, you don't normally do that. Talk about that some more. And he used a lot of like, you know, read methodology kind of techniques to kind of just get me to record, get me to hone in on certain things that no one else had recognized, no one else had noticed, because they're going back to like the, the big ticket things, the big flashy things that most clinicians would just like gravitate towards. 
And uh, he's the one who really helped me recognize through that and EMDR and some dream interpretation that, uh, yeah, I had all the signs and symptoms of PTSD. Like they were there, um, but it, it wasn't what most people would think that it was about. You know, that it, it ended up helping me understand that, you know, there was, there was one assignment that I got that was the, the biggest blessing and like the worst curse that I think a person could put on another person. It was like one, one of my best friends, um, when he was killed in Afghanistan, he put down on his will that he, he would like me to be the person who picks him up and brings his body back to his family in Texas. So um, that's a unique duty to be given, an honor and a privilege, and it's actually really, really emotionally taxing too. And uh, so I flew up, I flew up to Dover where I met him, and uh, I flew back on that little plane, you know, two seater with a casket, and fly back again. And normally, traditionally, the escort is not supposed to know the marine that they're escorting, um, and I can understand why. Um, because one of the last things you need to do is you go into the back of the funeral home with the director and you open up the casket and you have to, your job is to make sure that the uniform is presentable. Like everything's in the right place. Um, my buddy, you know, a Hispanic guy, been in the mountains for a few days. They had to do quite a bit of makeup to, you know, for, for, to, 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 to get his complexion right. And to protect it from the drapes, they had to like wrap his face in plastic. So for that split second, when he opened up the casket, there's my best friend. And this is a guy that, you know, before I was in recon, we were in security, before 9-11, you know, we were in security forces together. You know, we took the recon screening oh. together. We went to forest together. We went into Marstock together. You know, he, he, he was the guy that when I was on deployment, you know, they say you can trust a guy with your life, but never your money or your wife. Like I would trust him, I would trust him with all of it. You know, like I'm, 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 <laughs> yeah. I'm having trouble at home. Like, hey, can you go please take care of some stuff at the house for me? The wife was losing it. Can you go help me out here? And, uh, you know, for a second, I look at him and he looks like he's some kind of an, uh, an extra or a victim from like a Dexter episode with the plastic wrapped over his head. And just for that split second, I'm like, what the heck? And I go to reach for it. The funeral director goes, hey, that's that's to protect the makeup. I'm like, oh, OK, you got me, asshole. Man. And, I, and I do what I'm supposed to do. I check his uniform. You know what we do, put our, put a hog's tooth in his pocket, put the coins on him, like some of our little micro traditions that some of us do. And uh, I did not recognize at that time that that visual that I had of my best friend, this guy that was closer, that we were closer than my, my, my blood family was at the time, because just of the, the things that we had been through, seeing him like that was that imprint, that, that realization of death, of, of, of the finality of life, and that visual imprint of my eye to my brain, it just, it just left a stamp, it left this mark that I never fully processed. I was already at an, in, in an emotional, vulnerable state just having to go through that process that I didn't fully even recognize too, just thinking that I'm hardcore and I'm just doing what I got to do. But uh, that's when I recognized, I mean, now post-facto, I can look back after doing the work and where I started to separate from people, where I no longer wanted to be as friendly with the people that I work with that I used to want to be. You know, like I, I started to separate myself from close relationships with people, you know, and, you know, I, I can recognize it now, but, you know, it's, it's PTSD really is just when, when you have that event that takes place, and that memory is in your mind, that visual imprint is in your mind, and just like a, a corrupt computer file, you know, when you try to hover your mouse over top of it to open it up, all of a sudden the mouse jumps to the other side of the screen. You know, what the heck, and you try to go over there, and you try to access it again, and when you try to access it again, all of a sudden, like, you know, your screen blips out, or your microphone cuts out, or the sound blasts out. You know, it's like there's all these aversion things that happen, things that want to prevent you from getting back to it. And through dream interpretation, you know, this doctor was recognizing that I would keep referencing this silver ball that I would see. I'd open up the fridge, silver ball. I'd open up my desk drawer, silver ball. And he would help me learn how to do lucid dreaming where I can kind of engage in my dreams a little bit more. And it came up in EMDR, wow. too. 
and I would be able to start focusing in on it more. And the more I focused on it, the more I realized that that was my friend's face wrapped in plastic. You know, that silver ball was my friend's face that was wrapped in plastic. And I was able to recognize that that, that therein was the catalyst of one of the significant events that, that, that led to my PTSD. Uh, I mean, like a lot of veterans, it's, it's, it's not just one event, but there's usually one specific event that's more intense than others. Uh, a lot of guys, there's an event that happens in the beginning of their service that they remember very vividly, and then they go numb for a long time. And then there's that other event that kind of like breaks the, the straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, and that really was, that was the straw that broke the camel's back one for me too. That's what really had a big significant impact on my, on, on me. So going through that is when I kind of realized that after I finished working on this path of wellness for myself, I wanted to turn back around and try to be the type of clinician that I, I wish I had when I was going through this, like save all this time, save these, you know, 15 other guys that I have gone through. And some of them, I think made things a little bit worse because they would tell me that like, no, it has to be this. Think about how extreme that was. Think about how intense that was. Why wouldn't that bother you? You need to go back. And, 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 and it didn't, you know, I was conditioned and trained. I had pre-existing factors that conditioned me to be able to, I, I went out there to hunt people, to do these types of operations. I was fine with that. But for them to tell me there, there is something wrong with you if that does not bother you actually kind of hurts veterans. And there's a lot of clinicians that, that, are, that are stuck in that mindset. So that's what kind of led to the catalyst of wanting to be uh, a different type of clinician and, and more specifically um, work with work with veterans, work with active duty service members, you know, try to try to try to speak to them from a place and from as a person who's kicked some of the same dirt around, carry the same, you know, rough, rough sack weight around and, uh, and and connect with them more and, 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 and expanded upon that too, just to connect with people that have actually you know, some of those clinicians, like I said, are great and they're smart and they're well-versed, but I don't really know if they sweat very much in their entire life. You know, like, I don't know what kind of lifestyle that they've lived, but it wasn't very nitty and gritty or did not seem to be. So when we start talking about some of these raw aspects of life, they're going off of to go understanding or experience. And, and as a clinician, you can't do that all the time, but it definitely does help you relate to, to the people that you're talking to and connect with. Wow. That's amazing. Um, thank you for sharing that. That's, um, yeah, the mind is such an incredible tool and learning who you are, um, is really hard. And especially when you have, you know, just for people who don't have any sort of traumatic experience, um, you know, self-discovery is almost an art form. And then when you actually do have those corrupted files, it's very difficult. Um, I had a doctor once, um, explain it to me, complex PTSD or vicarious trauma. Um, it's as if your wiring, your hard wiring is fight, flight, flee, you know, or the fawn, right. The trauma response. And when those moments occur, it is a literal short circuiting of your brain. I had a little bit of a, a, a tech difficulty there, but we're, we're good. We're back. Um, yeah. He explained it to me that it's your trauma response, not having a clear outlet, right? It's a short circuiting, a short wiring of your brain. Um, if you're the type of person who fights, right, you can't fight in that situation with your friend in the casket and the plastic, right? You can't mm -hmm. flee. Um, you can't fawn, right? It's just a, it's a, um, that it's a short circuiting, even of your own childhood, you know, potentially childhood adverse experiences shape our trauma responses. 
And then, um, when you're in those moments, yeah, that, that is incredible that you were able to identify that and that you had an experienced clinician that was able to walk you through actually you, right. And getting to know you as a person, not what a textbook has taught them to do. Um, and that brings me to, um, don't get me started on how the army treats mental health care and trauma. And I won't even go there. That'll be for another one. Um, or not just the army, but the military in general. Um, well, we can go off yeah. Oh, good Lord. Yes. Uh, let's check a block, right? Uh, the little chicklets are green. We're good. Right. Um, so we know that PTSD is, I think a universal human condition. And, um, the fact that we are so, uh, kind of in the, the mental health dark ages still, when it comes to treating trauma, we're still kind of operating almost in these, um, you know, systemically and institutionally, these, these old school methodologies is like a throwback from the last century. And what we're seeing now are emerging integrative modalities, right? So your practice and many practices um, are starting to integrate, like you said, EMDR, which is an old discipline-ish, but um, is tech, right? Um, and then also, you know, these virtual reality integrations that allow veteran combat veterans to re-experience something that in a combat environment might have been similar to your experience with the casket, um, or even just in, in various different ways, um, meditation and these like sound healing practices and plant medicines, which we'll get into, we're starting to slowly see this paradigm change where these modalities are being integrated. And of course, with the Department of Veteran Affairs, which is the most incompetent, corrupt uh, bureaucracy ever to exist in, in, in my opinion, um, the civilized West um, is not going to move toward those quickly. Right. And so it's taking individual clinicians like you or, um, you know, mental health professionals that are spearheading these clinical trials with veterans um, to really move the needle on integrating some normalizing these modalities. And I'm sure, you know, it'll take decades, but guys like you are at the forefront. And so I wanted to ask you, um, you know, the global war on terror is allegedly ending, right? Um, and we've got an entire GWAT generation that, you know, is 20 years into combat service in many cases. Um, and some of them, you know, are really starting to realize that they truly need assistance outside of, you know, what is established and normalized uh, treatment and care. Um, also not drowning your sorrows in a bottle or having a ton of pills or we're seeing heroin addiction, a lot of opioids uh, on the rise in this community. It's been an endemic for a while, but um, definitely continuing. And I don't see suicides as, you know, that the old statistic 22 a day. Um, do we really know that it's even that little, right? And so how, in your opinion, does our societal approach to mental health need to evolve in the next 10 to 15 years, not just to treat combat trauma, right? Because we do have a whole generation that's going to need that help as they get older, right? But then also this COVID and the first responder trauma and people who are in the medical field who have literally watched, you know, people die every day. Um, what needs to happen in the next 10 to 15 years to, to modernize our approach? Tiffany, you just like fired me up with like so many different topics. I'd love. To <laughs> I know, about. I know. Well, honestly, because this is that that, that 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 is a great question, and like in all those other pieces that you mentioned beforehand as well too. Like, it's 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 not possible to fully answer that without at least 
discussing some of the brokenness of where we're at right now in our mental health system. You know, managed healthcare, or as like I like to call it, and others do, mangled healthcare. Like it's a broken system. I mean, it, it, it really is. There are some people that have the ability and the and the luxury to pay out of pocket tens of thousands of dollars over and over month, monthly to get their loved ones into treatment. You know, but there's a lot of us that are that are paying out of pocket or they're paying, you know, or they're, or they're going with their insurance companies to go get treatment. And the way that those systems are established are, are, are broken systems. I mean, they, they really are just broken systems, especially now that we got some large corporations that are responsible for providing these treatment facilities. Like it, 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 it's, it's just self-sabotage. All right. So you got an insurance company that gets into an agreement with like a, a corporation to provide, uh, you know, programming, PHP, IOP programming, these different levels of care, right? So they're going to say like, you know, like, yeah, we recognize that some people need help and they need these different levels of help. So we'll pay you this flat rate for PHP care. And that entails that you're going to give them at least this many hours a week or a day of treatment and one individual session a week or one every other week, depending on the level of care, you know? So everything else is considered all inclusive. So, I mean, even you got, when you got the company that is running that, they're seeing like, okay, I'm trying to make margins. I'm trying to make money here. So we're going to give them just those five or six hours, you know, depending on the revenue code, 912, 913, we're going to give them just that number of hours of treatment a week. And we're going to give them their one individual session. Well, if, you know, if, 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 if someone's working with me and as they're working with me, they realize that I'm having difficulties with addiction. I'm having difficulties with my marriage. I'm having difficulties with my trauma and I could benefit from ER or virtual reality exposure therapy. I can benefit from family therapy. You know, I can still need to benefit from like, you know, my emotional regulation issues or dysregulation issues. Um, you're getting one individual session a week. Which one do you want to focus on? You know, there's a lot of programs like, well, we're just going to do marriage therapy this week. We're not going to do the individual stuff. Like, well, I had this really triggering event or the anniversary is coming up. Yeah, but we need to get that. Your insurance contract says we got to do at least one marriage therapy session while you're in this programming. So we're going to focus on that. You know, like one of the things that we've tried to do separately and, and it's, and it's to the displeasure of some of my, uh, my, my, my corporate overlords when I've worked for other organizations, right. It's like, if, if you need, if you need family therapy and you need an individual session and you need to do EMDR, if you need three individual sessions a week, four individual sessions a week, we're going to do everything we can to make that happen for you. You know, as long as I have time on my clinician schedules to put that on there and to try to provide those services, we're going to provide those services. We know how important family therapy is. We know that it's effective. We know that we have to have expectation management with the spouse so they can understand what we're doing with the, with the, with, with their partner and what we're working on so that they can expect what changes they're going to see when they get home and help support those changes. We know that works. So why would we limit that? Why would we not provide that when we should be providing that? We know virtual reality exposure therapy works. You know, I got, I put, I put guys in the chair here and it does so many great things for them. You know, like there's the immediate response to the, to the booms or the explosions or the sounds of the you know, gunfire or just even being put in the vehicle again, or put in a scenario that reminds them of the environment that they're in or something with that. That's like the, that's the immediate visual or the audio or audible, like the, you know, trigger that causes the PTSD response. But then there's something else too. If, 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 if that's not what gets them, you know, when we remember something, all of your memories are anchored with an emotion at the same time too. So 
when we talk about what happens, especially our veterans, they're, they're really good at after action reporting it. You know, like there I was, and then this happened, I took a knee over here, the vehicle got blown up, I ran over to Tommy, I applied a tourniquet, you know, they're going over that memory, you know, they're going over that little groove in their brain, not recognizing that there is an emotion that is attached to that. You know, they can AAR it really quick, but they don't realize that they are pressing down on that memory and slowly releasing that emotion. I, I use the analogy of that, like, you know, I get back from the gym and my clothes are all nasty and sweaty, and, uh, you know, I go to throw them in the hamper and I miss and they just like fall on the floor. And then like two hours later, I come up into my room and I'm like, what in the, what in the world stinks up here well, nothing <laughs> from right now, but something from two hours ago stinks and it's slowly permeated and filled up the whole room. So we'll put them in the chair and we can go over some of those memories. And then an hour later, an hour later, two hours later, I'm checking in with them. We're journaling. How are you feeling? And they'll be like, I'm pissed. I'm irritable. I'm short tempered. I'm snapping off at everything. Well, let me ask you, did anything bad happen today? Did anything happen today to make you feel that? Like, no, like that's because, you know, the part of your brain that, 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 that feels emotion doesn't understand timestamps. So when you remember the emotion, when you have that emotional memory, you experience it right now. So when we went over something and you didn't even realize that you released the emotion and it's coming out from that event, and you slowly start to feel that emotion, you're feeling it in the present moment, but it's an emotional memory. You know, and a lot of times we've never let ourselves process that emotional memory, let ourselves actually feel, you know, we, we are conditioned and trained, you know, I stack up on the door, we breach it, he goes left, I go right, he has to stop short because of a couch, I have to run the long wall, oh, look, doorway left, doorway right, you know, like how we stack, you, you're reactional, 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 there's no place for emotions, you know, some of the armies creeds for, for, for tactics, like state, like, you know, being able to do it absence, the presence of emotion, because that will interfere with like what I, I need to know that you're going left because I'm going right. And this is how we're going to clear the room, but we never get a chance to fully let ourselves feel the emotions of what have taken place. Now, when we have, you know, operation after operation, after operation or deployment, after deployment, after deployment, we never have a chance to actually go back and let ourselves feel some of those emotions. That's this compounding emotional wound that we've never fully addressed. So we got this broken system that doesn't actually allow for time for the clinicians and the teams to actually focus in on utilizing this, this wide array of modalities to treat all of these different things at the same time. Now that's also creating a lot of systems where clinicians don't know how to do that. They don't have the capacity to do that. It's almost like when it's my time to do my individual session with you, I'm just doing like crisis management. I'm making sure you're getting through your treatment plan and that your ASAM review has been completed and that I can check off certain boxes because if I don't check off those certain boxes, we're going to get a rejection from the insurance company and then we're not going to get reimbursed for you. And then and because we're losing focus on the fact that this is a clinician-centered practice. This is a clinician-centered thing, you know, and the people that are starting to run these organizations are not clinicians, they're businessmen. So they want to see like number of clients that we can get in, asses to beds, you know, like how can we fill those things up? Are we giving them the bare necessity of what they need? Because we can bill for that and that's okay. And then we get them to a certain point, let's clear that bed out because, you know, insurance is no longer going to extend that. They're not going to authorize more treatment and we move them out gets even more broken when we start talking about substances. I mean, a lot of a lot of veterans, a lot of first responders, they have attempted to self-medicate from trauma through substances. Um, when you're looking at getting into a program, an insurance company is gonna get quick, easy authorization for treatment of a substance abuse problem. 
So like you might, you might have complex PTSD, you know, like that's something that, you know, it's still, still argued and debated between some clinicians, but like, that's real complex PTSD, right? Or just PTSD, however you want to state, you have PTSD and you've been treating it with addiction. You've been treating it with drinking. Well, I hear you as I'm doing your assessment, say that, you know, like you've been drinking so much that you meet like, you know, an addiction use disorder, an addiction disorder. And I say, when was the last time you drank? You might've been drinking your face off for years. And then you went cold Turkey and you stayed sober for like a month and then you relapsed, you know, 10 days ago. Well, I know that, you know, because you drank 10 days ago and there's a history of it, I, I, I can get X number of days of treatment for you. So that's what I'm bringing you in for. Primary diagnosis, addiction disorder, this is what we're going to be treating you for. By the end of that, you're either going to have to like, you know, leave residential and pay out of pocket to stay in housing, or you're going to have to like, you know, titrate to a different program. But this was the easy fix for my company to get you in, to get you into a bed, to get care for you. We're not actually like dealing with the problem. Like majority of the time when we're talking about an addiction issue, there is an underlying mental health issue that needs to be addressed that we need to work on. I mean, we can do relapse prevention skills and, you know, al alcoholism or substance abuse, it becomes this inorganic demon that like walks and talks and breathes and lives all on its own. And we could do relapse prevention skills and, 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 and take techniques to, to slay that beast, right? To put it down. But when you're sitting at home and the power goes out and those voices are coming back to you about that thing that you did or that issue that you never dealt with or those emotions that are still unresolved, that's what gives that, that, that demon CPR and that shocks its heart and resuscitates it. And you decide to go to the bottle to shut those voices up again. You know, we have to deal with both at the same time. That is difficult to do when the company is focused on a five hour all, or six hour all-inclusive day code, because that's all we get for funding. And if I'm going to put an extra hour in it, it comes out of my bottom dollar instead of just really focusing on caring for the client, you know, giving them the best care. Do you feel, um, and I want to talk about plant medicines because I, I really feel very passionately that that is a um, modality with the most promising potential. Science is now catching up to that. Uh, we're seeing clinical studies um, actually um, being addressed. Just things are being addressed in a clinical environment at the very early stages. It feels like we're on the precipice of a very important human discovery um, with integrating plant medicines and trauma treatment. But what, tell me what else can be done? Is the answer to this private citizens donating to organizations? I know Sheepdog Program does this, but um, what is the answer? How, how do we, how can citizens that hear what you're saying and find this repulsive to our core, how can we advocate? How can we help? What, what is, I know it's not an easy fix, but is there sure. something that can be done? Well, I mean, the, the, the first answer you're right on the money is, 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 is well, exactly that is, is, is the money you know, being, being able to find programs that are willing to pay for those adjunct services or nonprofits that want to provide a, effective treatment to people and being able to support them, you know, be it through grants, be it through non through donations, you know, be, be, be in a way where we can get our guys into programs where the focus is actually treating as many, all of the issues at one time, getting, getting, getting as much um, movement as we can and in, in moving towards wellness at, at, at one time, instead of just like, you know, let's just deal with the addiction. I've, I've seen programs where like, we had him here for 60 days and he stayed sober for 60 days. I'm like, well, great job. I mean, there's a magnetic lock on the door. So like that probably wasn't too hard. What did you do to deal with the trauma? Oh, we don't want to touch trauma while we're here. That's just too much for us to deal with. I'm like, you had him here for 60 days. 
you know, like you, you, you milked, you milked the substance abuse thing for 60 days with these magnetic doors. They couldn't go out and get tested by the rest of the world. You didn't even touch the trauma. So the first step is trying to fund and support the programs that want to do it right. You know, and then like, and, and, and by doing that, we create this environment where we can get studies, where we can get the empirical evidence and the data to show this is what actually works. This is what works more effectively than that. You're right on the money. I can go on all day with the VA and like how I feel broken about their systems and, 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 and what they're doing and specifically in this area right now too. But like, you know, being able to show that this is the appropriate way to actually approach some of those issues. Once we get those studies, once we can get those numbers, once we can get enough uh, of a movement going behind it, man, our, 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 our approach towards mental health treatment and programs definitely needs to be reattacked, reengaged. You know, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta break this, this thing where, if, 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 if we have licensed clinicians, you know, professionals in their field that say that these are the best services that are provided, what do we got to do to get what, at least the expenses paid to treat that person, to keep the lights on, to keep the power on, to keep the internet going so that we can like put them in the programming and do what we have to do so that they can get the care that they actually need instead of how it's viewed from up high as you're doing more than you need to. I could actually have you seeing someone else for their once a week individual service instead of giving that person that extra care that they really need. So uh, no, we don't want you doing that. And, and, that's, and that's the battle that I have all the time. That's like when I work the sheepdog program with the corporation, the, the agreement is like, if you wanna run this program, if you wanna be able to say that you, you provide the sheepdog program, you have to do it to a certain standard. And if you push against that standard, like if you try to if you try to destroy the validity or the integrity of the program we're putting forward, well, we're gone. You know, you, you don't have the sheepdog program anymore. You call it whatever you want, do whatever you want with it. But like, we're not going to attach our name to it because you're you're not giving them the care that they really need. But at the end of the day, it's going to be us having to break down this 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 system that's been in place for way too long, where. Um, you know, the assessments are based off of like, you know, last known time of use. And a lot of facilities call themselves dual diagnosis, but in reality, they're a substance abuse facility and it has to be a substance abuse as a primary diagnosis. And then they can do some mental, they can claim to do some mental health stuff at the same time. Like be a true, like we are a true dual diagnosis program. You can just be mental health without substance abuse. If you can't take somebody in that's mental health without substance abuse, then you're not really a true dual diagnosis program. You know, being able to, um, just break down these systems, break, break, break down this pattern that we've had put in place for way too long. And uh, it's going to be how to do that. Who's the right person to call for that? I mean, that's kind of the same question I have when I when I want to say, who do I call to hold the VA accountable for these guys that keep getting denials when I'm trying to get them into treatment, when I'm trying to get them yeah, served? You, you reach into this monolith and you find an endless well of not here and that other person will help you. Um, so that's where it's interesting to me. Um, First of all, I thoroughly believe that we are living through a time where a lot of these um, centralized behemoth institutions that have very little actual efficacy in society are going to be wholesale challenged um, and potentially liquidated. And it's it's funny too because we're living through such a turbulent and busy time. So much is happening all the time that it's hard to even you know stick your finger and, and find a common thread. But I do see that there are a lot more um, just people that otherwise probably would never have engaged with mental health professionals actually seeking treatment during COVID. I have many friends who are clinicians and um, not that work in your discipline, but 
um, just in general. And they're like, I literally have never been so busy in my life. I am burned out. I'm overwhelmed. Mental health professionals can't catch a break because there are so many people that are trying to cope with lockdowns and COVID and um, civil disruption and, um, you know, all of these, these uh, just uncertainties. And so I think in the next 10 to 15 years, there's going to be a lot of people who have now for the first time engaged with the system you're describing and see how terrible it is and are going to want alternatives, uh, mostly entrepreneurs, assuming that the middle class isn't crushed completely in the next 10 to 15 years. Um, I see a lot of entrepreneurs with really great innovations and ideas just trying to really spearhead some change in this area. And that's where plant medicines come in because, um, you know, for people who are not familiar uh, with plant medicines, you don't have to engage in this type of therapy, right, to understand its power. And one thing that's very interesting about um, plant medicines, which I'd like to talk about with you, is that you are seeing this steady across the board decriminalization and normalization. I have friends that are in the Silicon Valley crowd that have been microdosing, you know, various things since, you know, the, the early aughts, right. And it's how they got a competitive edge. Steve jobs allegedly invented the iPhone after a, um, a psychedelic experience. And so there's a lot of misinformation and, you know, particularly talking to mainstream Americans who are not engaged with that crowd. Um, and also veterans and military community where, um, you know, alcohol is the preferred resource for trauma treatment, right. Um, or pills or whatever candy the VA can pop out to you, which, you know, big pharma deeply benefits from. Um, but plant medicines are starting to make this, um, transition from being this taboo topic for hippies, right. <laughs> um, and into kind of, you know, more of a mainstream American circles. And we're starting to see slowly that more and more more individuals who are very concerned about their mental health are opening up to, um, you know, this, this healthy experimentation, starting with slow, low doses of things, right. And then going on to potentially full on plant medicine experiences. And, um, you know, I'm a military spouse. I sent my husband into 37 months of combat, um, 10 years later, our friends and family, you know, the, the global war on terror generation, um, and elder millennials, right, in the military have retired or are retiring. And I think we as a generation are just getting started in terms of leadership. And most of us have been navigating these, you know, orchestrated bubbles and bad policies and um, boomer legacy stuff and raising kids, starting businesses, getting our degrees, right, serving overseas. But we're about to take over a country and an economy that's essentially in shambles, ravaged by you know, pretty much two decades of war, um, suicide, substance abuse, moral injury, loss, right? That's not counting COVID. Um, but we're not just all combat veterans, right? We have a lot of healing to do as a generation, as a society, as a culture that is stepping up to lead, right? Um, or I feel bad things are going to happen. <laughs> so I believe that these studies and early research is showing that plant medicine and psychedelic experiences present this really promising treatment for trauma. So in your opinion, and of course, you know, first studies for people who don't know, I can put some um, show links, this really interesting, fascinating journey that um, these banned substances, you know, during the scary Nixon era um, are starting to reemerge um, in many different ways. Uh, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind is a great book for people who are more interested in that. But 
they're showing that efforts to decriminalize have been centered around giving veterans access to these medicines first, right? Texas just made it legal for people who aren't tracking for veterans um, to, to explore PTSD treatment with plant medicine. So how do you see the conversation in the military and veteran community changing around psychedelics and plant medicines as something from that taboo to something that people are actually becoming more open to? So, I mean, man, again, I love how you lead up a question with so many great points. I want to I it. No, no, it's good. These, these are all great talking points. I mean, you're totally right. First step is the breaking down of all of that. There's, there's so much stuff that has just like systemically been placed in front of us based off of like our past generations that um, we, we have to be able to take a real look at. I mean, I've been working with psychiatrists who, I mean, even here in Florida with marijuana being made medicinally, you know, available, they're like, marijuana is the devil. Like, I won't work with anybody who does marijuana. I'm like, well, you better get used to it because the guy got a prescription for it. And it's like, he's not doing anything illegal. Like, how about you teach him how to use it to address the symptoms? Like, you're okay with throwing all of these pills down a person's throat, but like, here's something from the earth that they can utilize. And we've recognized, like, we can't argue. It, 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 it's, it's proven. It, it can help people. So why not teach them? Like, I love in some states, they have, you know, cannabis nurses that are actually coaching people and guiding them and showing them like, Hey, so what are your symptoms? Okay. What strand are you smoking? What's the percentage of it? All right, go ahead, hit that. All right. I'll be back in a few minutes. All right, let's go over your symptoms. Are you still feeling them all? No. Great. Hey, take this quick little aptitude test. Oh, you can't do that. You just do squiggly lines. Maybe that's a little too strong for you. Let's dial it down a little bit. Because the intention is to address the symptoms and use this as a medicine, not just get your green card and be off to the races all day long, yeah. you know? I mean, just like you said, like, you know, your, your, your friends who are just like, you know, overwhelmed with work because of the COVID season, like, and then they might be reaching out to find these programs and recognize how broken these programs are. That also leads to some, some dangerous things that are out there. I shouldn't say dangerous because there's some great people that do alternative things, but there are also some that are just, just, just voyeuring in this realm of, of coaching and life coaching. There's some great life coaches out there. Absolutely are, you know, but there are some that just like to call themselves, you know, that. And being careful where, what alternatives we have open because we've been so restricted and so closed-minded and so routine in providing inept services. Like some of those people that like, you know, they would, they would be better off if they went to two to four weeks of like something more intensive and then went to outpatient treatment. And they'd be, they would find results much better than spending 12 months, you know, every week seeing a counselor, you know, they would, they would see a lot better effects. Same thing with plant medicine. Like that's something that we need to do exactly what some, 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 some great universities are attempting to do right now. And that's like put the studies and the research together to show the benefits that these things actually can provide in the realm of treating people with, you know, medication resistant depression or PTSD or anxieties. Um, I was, I, I, you know, fresh out of school, probably because I was fresh out of the military and fresh out of school. Like the first time somebody came up to me and talked to me about plant medicine is I was like, just getting my feet planted in a program. I'm like, okay, dude, yeah, you go ahead and uh, get, get that stuff on out of here, you know? <laughs> but then one of the guys that I went through the sheepdog program, you know, met up with that same individual, went through one of those ceremonies and he came into my office, like kicking the door down saying like, bro, you have to meet with this guy again. I'm telling you, like everything we did in like the, the, the four months, the, six, the four to six months that we worked together, I experienced again in a weekend. And what I got out of that weekend was, a hundred times more than what the other people who didn't have therapy got out of that weekend. There's something, there's something serious about combining these two things. Like, you know, the intensive, cause we, we, we utilize like this intense 
Jungian approach with some Rogerian constructs and existential philosophy. So these guys understand the Jungian psyche, you know, the, the, the persona, the consciousness, the ego, the anima animus and the shadow, which, you know, a lot of plant medicines, especially we start talking about like, you know, ayahuasca and things like that. It, that is shadow work strapped to the nose cone of a rocket. You're just getting like launched right into it. If you know what you're think, what you're doing, what it is, what's happening, it's a medicine. Like we got to get out of the headspace that this is just some like, you know, counter culture narcotic and realize that this is an ancient sacrament that these tribes have been taking for, 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 for a long time. And we can now look at it, break it down to a score compound and see that there are medicinal properties in here. There, 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 there's benefits in utilizing this. You know, ayahuasca is DMT with a myo inhibitor. You know, it allows people to get into this place where they are able to do really dream work, dream, dream analysis, dream interpretation in a conscious state. And if we can work with the person, have them explore their timeline, you know, process trauma, um, you know, maybe do some EMDR with them, have them understand Jungian psyche constructs, and then explain to them what this type of medicine can do. It's, 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 it's no different. Like we, we're, we're okay with providing ketamine treatments for people. I mean, that's a, that, 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 that's a, that's a, that's a man-made compound that we're putting into people. What's wrong with this thing. That's simply a vine and a leaf reduction, something, two things from the earth that they turn into this reduction that provides such an incredible benefit for people. So we got to get ahead of it because just like, people might find themselves going to the wrong life coach. There's going to be other places, other organizations, you know, there's, there's philocybin facilities out here that are doing great work, but then there's also like, you know, something like Jamaica that are just pretty much like party towns, you know, like that's not what we're talking about when we're saying like getting healing from plant medicine, you know, getting, getting, getting the clinical staff, clinical support, the people that believe in it, the people that can understand how it really works with helping a person understand their psyche and do that individuation, like that, that, the reintegration of these shadow aspects of themselves um, on board with, with, with embracing some of these plant medicines and using them in conjunction with each other, providing the framework for some very intensive pre-work and then some very, very good post-work in, integrative work after their journey as well too. So they can understand what they're doing. I've had guys that have done, 15 journeys, 30 journeys, and you know, they, they, they feel themselves getting to this plateau. And like, yeah, you're going to get to this plateau. Because I mean, in reality, this, this medicine is only helping you see what you already know. It's slapping you out of your subjective experience and it's putting you up to this 30,000 foot level where you're able to see your phenomenological experience and have and, and, and re-engage in it absence of like the emotional subjectiveness that kind of like takes place in there. And if you have the right tools in place, if you've learned how to process you know, reprocess your trauma, understand some of the things that have happened to you, how to have better emotional regulation skills. You could say, man, when that thing happened to me, why did I behave like that? Hmm. And because of that, I've let everything since that point, you know, be this way or be seen that way. And when you come back into yourself, you've like redigested that event and it just feels it's processed, it's experienced differently. And then with proper reintegration afterwards, like there's I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing, and we need to keep on, keep the studies going to see the, the, the long lasting effects that plant medicine is having on people. I mean, it's, it's, we're, 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 we're starting to explore the potential, the possibility of it, you know, creating new neural synapses and like, you know, regenerating brain connections. I mean, I mean th there's a lot of great work that might be out there and we've strayed away from it for so long because it was just taboo. Like it's time to get past that. I mean, just, 
magic is only magic because we didn't have an explanation for it at a certain point in time. Like now we can yeah, understand technology it. undiscovered. Magic is only technology undiscovered, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we know what this is. We know what it can do. Let's use it right because if 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 we don't, there's going to be people are going to still search it out. It has an incredible purpose in doing therapeutic work. Let's incorporate it. Let's incorporate it right so we can actually help people. I mean, let's just like using VR exposure therapy in conjunction with EMDR, in conjunction with family therapy, in conjunction with their individual therapy that can work themselves up to a point where now they're ready to just have this experience where they can kind of reabsorb it. I have one guy who worked with me for months trying to, I want to be this man. I want to be this person. This is the person that I want to be based off of like, you know, our, our, our reframing of the ideal self and this construct of, of, of who we wanted to see himself become. And then, you know, he goes and he goes on one of those journeys and he comes back again with the recognition of, I am that man. I've been that man. I've grown into that man. I didn't notice it because I've been looking at myself every day. And it took something to just help me like step out of myself reflect reflect on myself from a different perspective to come back and realize I, I I no longer have to think that I'm like oh I'm striving to be something I am that and I can embrace that and that's the bar that I'm setting for myself every day and and I've, I've he, man the man is still thriving still doing good and he's able to hold himself to that standard that he set for himself wow that's amazing um, so I have a final question for you. And I wanted to get into first responder mental health and law enforcement mental health. Um, I'm going to have to, we'll have to do that uh, for, I'm going to have to have you back probably many times, but um, I want to ask you, so if you're a veteran or a military spouse, right. And that's one thing I want to make very clear to anyone listening to this, the military spouses who have been holding it down for, you know, <laughs> 20 years also need this treatment. And I'm going to have, um, you know, probably in a couple of weeks, um, Allison Wilson, from uh, the Hope Project, who's engaging with you know Gold Star mothers and spouses, and also just military spouses, um, whose husbands have successfully gone through these various types of treatments. Um, so I don't want to leave the spouses out because they're very obviously they're very important um, oh, yeah. to us as speaking as one. But when you're a veteran or a spouse, you know, suffering with addiction or anxiety and PTSD. And, you know, maybe even talking specifically about your program, which I know is based in Florida, um, but you guys are, you know, establishing a clinic, you're um, going to be fundraising soon. And then hopefully that'll perpetuate out nationwide. I'd love to see, you know, just knowing your model from previous conversations um, that I'd love to see that perpetuate nationally, internationally. Um, but how do they get started? How does that start? What is, what does it look like? And I, I mean, from therapy to the, the, um, you know, outside of the sheepdog program, like your partnerships that you have paint a picture for me of what that looks like or how they get started so that people have some clarity as to where they begin and what that looks like. No, that's good. And that actually helps me clarify on, on, on the last question, the last, the last part of that as well too. So, so right now there's still this, you know, taboo belief or, 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 or like, you know, systemic, just a concept on, 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 on a lot of plant medicines. You know, there's a few that we've gotten permission to utilize, you know, the marijuana is being utilized, you know, the psilocybin has been okay in certain counties, certain cities, certain, certain states. Um, some of these medicines are only okay or be allowed to be utilized in the, in the, in the um, organization of a church, like in the organization of like a, a religious practice. You know, the, the difficulty that a lot of active duty guys are going to have is, you know, a state can say something is okay, but the federal government says that something is not okay. And they have to play that. They have to, they have to balance that, you know, they have like to work. CBD for instance is still. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so like, the, I, I mean, 
personally for me, like I'm, I'm all about getting the brother the help that he needs whenever he needs to get that help, you know, like, and that's, and that's, and that's where my heart is. But I recognize that these guys, especially the active duty guys, they have to, they have to, they have to recognize that, you know, even though the state says it's okay, or even though it's okay, because this is like a religious practice, unless they have a specific exemption, which I believe some services are now opening it up to like, you know, certain, certain plant medicines like ayahuasca to give exemptions for, for the purposes of religious ceremonies. Um, it's, it's, it's still considered a kind of taboo to get into. Okay. So as a clinical program, you know, like I don't write a referral or a prescription for a person to go do ayahuasca, you know, like I still said, there's, there's tons of psychiatrists and, 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 and other clinicians out there that are like, Oh my gosh, what are you talking about? Be careful. This is really, this is really dangerous. And I go, well, let me ask you this. Um, if somebody told you that they had to go to Wednesday night mass and that was in the middle of a relapse prevention group, would you allow them the ability to practice their, you know, their spirituality? Like, oh yeah, absolutely. We'd find something else around them. I'm like, good, that's good. So if somebody said they had to pray five times a day and, you know, that was in the middle of group and they had to leave group to go pray, would you allow them the ability to go pray? And like, oh, absolutely. I wouldn't want to interfere with that. Okay. 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 Well, let's just say we had somebody who was, uh, you know, the religious beliefs prevented them from being able to take pharmaceuticals, you know, you know, they fell off track, they were an alcoholic, or they were some kind of an addiction, but now they're back in their faith, and they, and they can't take certain medications. Would you support the religious practices by not forcing certain medications down their throat, you try to find alternatives, right? Like, oh, yeah, absolutely, I totally would. Okay. So when a person says they want to go to this church to practice this sacrament, because that's part of their spiritual beliefs, are you going to be the person that tells them that they can't do that? Are you going to tell them that they can't practice their religious freedoms? And it's like, oh, well, no, 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 that's not what I'm trying to <laughs> yeah. say. Oh, no, I don't want to be that person. So no, like, in, in, until the greater clinical community the, the, is, is able to show these results and like, and we're going to have to partner with these churches. We're going to have to partner with these organizations. You know, we're going to have to have people go out of country to do certain types of studies. We're going to have to get special grants and authorizations to do, to, to, to use these types of medicines um, until the greater clinical community can show this has a purpose. This works. Here's here here is the protocol for how we're going to be doing it. You know, it 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 really is falling into this 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 realm where it has to be done through you know through these church organizations or within a clinical trial or underneath the care of certain clinicians, depending on if they have the authorization to to, to do these types of trials. Um, and again, this is one of those things like you talked where, where we need to get ahead of that power curve because it. What would you prefer? I mean, let's just say like you know, let's just say one of your best friends, you know, a family member, sister, your daughter, you know, do you want her going to another country and traveling into the jungle to try to go try this plant medicine? Or would you like it if it was able to be done here at home? Mm. You know, like I, I, I would prefer if they were able to do it here at home. You know, I would be able to prefer if they were able to do it here at home in conjunction with therapy so that they can continue to get proper pre-work and proper post-work. But we got to get ahead of this power curve. You know, we got to stop looking at it as just taboo. It's here, it works. If you don't believe that, then you've been very rigid minded and you got to just start just 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 look into it. There's 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 plenty of well-respected people that have done studies that, that that can speak on this, that can show you exactly how it's affecting the brain um, and, 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 and the applicability it has in, in, in therapies. Um, so we got to stop being scared of it. That's beautiful. So how do people learn more about the Sheepdog program, those who are interested in supporting you? Sure. So you can find us on uh, on the web, you know, the sheepdogprogram.com. And also uh, that that's for if you have somebody that, you know, you think could benefit from the programming, they want to talk, see like some of the services that we provide. Um, you know, if you got a, a, a family member or a friend or somebody that you want to try to get into programming, direct them to the sheepdogprogram.com. 
Um, if you know somebody that could be a potential donor and wants to look at it from the, the, the nonprofit corporation side, the sheep.corporation.com provides more information on the board of directors and the mission and the intent and the, and, and the growth plan and, and provides an opportunity for donations. Uh, Sheepdog program also has a Facebook page as well. And, uh, and we're also working with some, uh, some other organizations. Emerald Medical is a group that I'm partnering up with and we're starting our own medical group. Um, it's, a, it's actually a, an SFPA and a SOCOM surgeon and myself as the three, the, the, the three directors of it that are, uh, that are trying to provide a whole new approach at treating people and, 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 and doing so in a way that we're open to these different modalities, different, different therapeutic approaches for people. That's awesome. That's so great. Well, thank you for your work, Adrian. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know, again, you have patience and all the wonderful things, the balancing act of all the things you're doing. Um, but I do appreciate your time and thank you again so much. I look forward to having you back and picking your brain about law enforcement and PTSD and, you know, uh, the, the new civil rights era and how we can you know, get better training and mental health to law enforcement, and I'm sure a bunch of other uh, lovely topics. So thank you again for your time and have a great and wonderful day. Absolute pleasure. Thank Thanks. you.